Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Good. They hear music. That's good. All right. So, you know, the music is a clue. No one has solved the mystery, but uh, the music is a clue. All right. So, this is Colin, first of all. We have a very interesting show for you today. Before I begin to sketch out the details of that, let me tell you what else is happening. Uh, what else is happening is that well, we, as many of you know, uh, some time ago, invented a type of programming called Radio for the Deaf. Our feeling being that the deaf audience obviously doesn't really have a lot to do with radio. Uh, but there ought to be a way that we could at least sometimes create a, a form of radio that they could experience. So what we do is we have two wonderful um, interpreters in here. Uh, they are American Sign Language interpreters. Uh, they will be re- reinterpreting the show in American Sign Language on a video feed, which is visible on on the Colin McEnroe Show uh, Facebook page. So you'll see on Facebook, you'll see a Facebook Live video feed uh, of Mary Sue and Heidi. Uh, interpreting everything that goes on today. So if there's anybody that you know, obviously, if you could hear me saying this, you don't really need this service probably. But uh, if there's anybody you know uh, who maybe fits the description of somebody who might need it, and not just people around here too. I mean, anywhere in the country, anywhere in the world, you could obviously look at this just about anywhere anywhere where there is Facebook anyway. That's not really everywhere. Um, and also, if you know anybody from any other radio station who would like to try to do this, who's intrigued by it, I mean, we're sort of the only people right now in America who do it. But we'd love to teach somebody else how to do it, too, because it's not all that hard, although there's, you know, there's a learning curve, but it's not all that hard. All right. So enough about that, although there's never really enough about radio for the deaf. Um, it's time to talk about what the show is about. We are welcoming back to the show uh, a guest that we've had on several times before. Uh, her visits are always memorable, and people always talk about them afterwards. Uh, she is Sarah Kenzior, op-ed columnist for The Globe and Mail and Fast Company, and the author of um, a, a book called, and it's kind of ironic under today's circumstances, The View from Flyover Country, Dispatches from the Forgotten America. We're here to talk to Sarah Kenzior uh, about that. Um, although, Sarah Kenzior, uh, oddly enough, you were maybe going to even be in this studio except your relationship with flyover country and flying in general uh, wasn't all that you hoped it would be yesterday, correct? <laughs> yeah, this is true. Uh, I was supposed to come, you know, be with you in person, and I wish I could, but my flight was canceled by JetBlue, who then tried to divert me from D.C. to Connecticut via San Juan, uh, mm-hmm. which wasn't really going to work for me in terms of timing. So, yeah, yeah I'm in D.C. Okay, well, um, it's great to hear your voice a- anyway. And so, you know, in a way, um, we could almost start there. We could start right where we just stopped talking. Uh, Because one of the interesting things you bring up towards the end of this book is that notion that 2016 was uh, in many ways forgotten people, uh, the forgotten people of America, people who uh, were 
uh, were lagging behind uh, their own expectations and perhaps our own expectations for what this country can can do for people and what people can do in this country. But that the definition of forgotten people was even at that time selective and has become even more selective, right? Some forgotten people got to be remembered <laughs> as part of the story of the 2016 election. There's a whole bunch of them that are still forgotten. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, in retrospect, a better better term would be neglected people or abandoned people, um, because this phrase of forgotten people is one that Trump and his crew have embraced to kind of designate um, a certain stereotype, basically an older white male manufacturing worker with very conservative views, um, usually out, you know, where I live in places like Missouri, um, where in reality, I would say the majority of the American population falls into this category of struggling, of struggling to get by on a daily basis, of facing discrimination or economic obstacles um, that can be remedied to some degree um, if officials are held accountable. And of course, Trump has no interest in actually fixing these problems. I don't think his administration has a vested interest in serving the public. And so, you know, we remain neglected, we remain abandoned, and, you know, depending how you look at it, forgotten. Well, I think also, Sarah, you know, there there was this notion uh, that, um, and not an unreasonable notion. I mean, you, you talk to more people in this condition than I did, but I talked to people who were going to vote for Trump. The people that I talked to were frequently members of the white middle to lower middle to working class um, who, who just felt like nothing was working for them anymore uh, and they wanted change and they were ready to have some pretty uh, devastatingly radical kinds of, of change and they thought this guy could deliver it. But you know, I mean, most of those people, most of those people, sort of so-called forgotten people who came unforgotten for the purposes of talking about who the Trump voters were, were white Americans. I mean, I, I don't know, like, you know, you almost get diverted to Puerto Rico. That's who, who I think the forgotten people are. I mean, yeah. the three million Americans who are living in the 19th century right now and nobody seems to care about it at all. Yeah. And that, you know, and the same is true of places like Flint, um, you know, that haven't had water for years um, and of places like where I live in St. Louis, where if you go to North St. Louis, um, you know, which is a very poor, almost entirely black area of the city, you'll find people with the same life expectancy as those living in war zones in places like Syria or Iraq. There's this chronic abandonment, um, which I think is more profoundly felt in communities that have been historically discriminated against. That said, um, I do think think that there is genuine economic anguish among almost all American populations, including poor white people um, who voted for Trump. I don't think, though, that that was necessarily the decisive factor. And, you know, voters for anyone are not a monolith. There's not a monolith of Trump voters. There's not a monolith of Hillary voters. But what you do see with Trump is that almost all of those voters, whatever the reason was, were white. Um, And I think, you know, it's much easier to either overlook um, or embrace Trump's xenophobia, uh, his bigotry, his targeting of certain marginalized populations when you're a white American and you don't fit into that targeted demographic. Right. Even just looking at some of the anecdotal reporting uh, that pe- writers like you do, and Dan Bowles has a thing in the Washington Post right now, where you, you see these, you see people saying, because I mean, I, I think when there's a problem, people want to find a, a culprit or a causer 
uh, of the problem. I was struck by uh, one of Dan Balz's people that he interviewed. He said something like, um, people get tired of self-editing, you know, and Trump kind of gave them permission to talk about immigrants who were taking their jobs. I mean, immigrants taking our jobs is not a particularly real thing, mm-hmm. but it probably is a driver uh, of the kind of thing that you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, that's not the reason people are losing their jobs. People are mostly losing jobs um, because of automation. And in the case of certain industries, they've been losing their jobs since the Reagan era. You know, you've seen this deterioration. And there's been apathy, um, you know, from multiple administrations about the plight of these people. You know, this is a a real problem. Um, But, you know, one thing I found when I was interviewing Trump voters throughout his campaign is that, you know, they did have, some of them had this idea that immigrants were to blame for, for job loss. And then I would ask, you know, are there immigrants in your community that you think have taken your jobs? And they're like, well, no. And I'm like, well, are there immigrants in your community? And they're like, oh, yeah, you know, Jose who owns the restaurant. He's great. We love him. And I'm thinking, you know, these these policies are possibly going to lead to, you know, certainly to hate crimes, to hate rhetoric, because we're already seeing that back in 2016, but possibly to deportation and to other, you know, targeted xenophobic policies. And um, they were not getting that message. And I think a lot of that had to do with uh, how the media portrayed this. You know, ironically, Trump told the truth about that. Trump was straight out like, I'm going to persecute these people baselessly, and I'm going to lie about the reasons that I'm doing it. And that message became sugarcoated um, in the media, like in the more liberal media. And it was just, you know, flat out either denied or justified in conservative outlets like Fox um, that are enormously influential over this group of voters. I think it is, I mean, one distinction that I hear you making here, I see you making it in the book too, and it's very characteristic of your work is something that I've been struggling with a lot just in the conversations that I have with people, especially on social media, where I will occasionally say, we're going to make a distinction between Donald Trump and the 63 million people who voted for Donald Trump, right? I mean, some of those people really are, you know, as Hillary Clinton said, deplorables. They're xenophobic. They're homophobic. They're uh, they're bigoted. They're whatever. But but not all, all not all 63 million people fit any one description or even have any one motive. People vote the way that they do in a national election for all kinds of different reasons. Uh, and I I sense here. Uh, on you know, in the more liberal East Coast, that people have just decided, no, all 63 million people are uh, who voted for Trump are racist uh, fascists who will you know, live in infamy. Yeah, I mean, I definitely feel like, as I said before, it's not a monolith. I think there's a difference between this base of voters um, who find his cruelty, his bigotry, the most exciting thing about Trump. That's the main attraction. Um, And then I would talk to other people who were kind of just holding their nose. They didn't like either of them. Um, They'd always voted Republican or they were pro-life. You know, they had some sort of reason. And they decided to just take a chance on Donald Trump. But what I think, you know, is notable and should be pointed out is that every one of those voters who did that did so knowing that fellow citizens were going to be persecuted because Trump was very open in his rhetoric. He was open in his misogyny. He was open um, in his, you know, his xenophobia and in his actual policies, which were extremely destructive um, to certain communities. And you had to be willing uh, to overlook that. And I think the fundamental mistake that almost all Americans made was a faith in institutions, a faith in their strength and of checks and balances. You know, I heard both 
from people who voted for Trump and for those who voted for Hillary that, oh, there's no way he could actually pass these policies. There's no way that we could lose our democracy, checks and balances, the Constitution, you know, we're a nation of laws, all this kind of stuff. And, you know, I spent most of my career um, before moving back into journalism studying authoritarian states and studying the breakdown of uh, democratic precepts and knowing that laws are only as good as the people who uphold them and that the people who Trump was planning to put in this administration were not good at all and that actually we were extremely vulnerable to autocracy. And that is the thing that I think pretty much across the board, most Americans did not see coming. Right. Um, and and you know, before we get back to, to Trump, I don't want to spend the whole show talking about Trump. Uh, but first of all, let's, uh, let, let's hear how you were feeling about all this stuff. Uh, the last time that you were on our show, that was uh, the uh, July 27th, 2017, 16 months after that presidential election and inauguration uh, of Donald Trump. You know, obviously, we've had a very hard last 15 years. We've had two wars. We've had a, a giant recession from which a lot of us haven't recovered. And it's made us extremely vulnerable for an authoritarian demagogue to come in and undermine our liberty, our safety, and our freedom. And we don't have time to sort of see how this plays out. We really need to apply pressure to our officials now to investigate Trump's corruption, to investigate his tax returns, to investigate his relationship with Russia and other foreign states and his investment in other foreign states, and see whether he has, you know, already broken the law. Um, This is essential. You know, I don't, I love this country. I love this country so much. I'm sorry. And I just don't want to see, I don't want to see this happen because I've been to countries that are authoritarian states and I've seen that repression of freedom. You know, a lot of us came here to America to escape situations like this. You know, we came here for sanctuary and for safety. And so, you know, I, I'm very serious um, that, I, that I, I want everyone to work hard to try to prevent this, because the only way I think that's possible is if we really look out for each other. How does it feel uh, hearing your story? You're very upset, obviously, emotional on that day. Um, uh, an awful lot of the things that you said turned out to be prophetic, and that might even be an understatement. Yeah, that I, I remember doing that. That was actually, I think, from November um, of 2016. That was, you know, shortly That's after right. the You're election. Correct. Yeah. Um, you know, and one of the things, of course, that I was concerned about, it didn't get into too much detail at the time. Um, you know, were his Russia ties, uh, Kremlin and mafia ties, that level of corruption um, that I worried was deeply entrenched, that I worried was part of a longer-term plan. Um, you know, and at the time I wanted to emphasize what people could do, you know, to, to keep your mindset um, and your values intact, to not get sucked into this feeling of futility um, and to this sort of ceding our institutions and our rights and our freedom uh, to these terrible people. But yeah, I, I, I was upset. I am upset. Um, you know, I'm very upset that a lot of uh, Trump's policies came to fruition, that a lot of things that I warned about um, were dismissed for a very very long time before being taken seriously. And I'm angry at our officials. I'm angry at them for dropping the ball um, in 2016. But well before that, I mean, certainly, you know, when Manafort was selected as Trump's, um, you know, uh, 
campaign manager, that's when the alarm bell started ringing in my mind for Russia. And I keep thinking, if I figured this out, why didn't the intelligence community? Um, and of course, I'm angry at, at the GOP and others uh, whose job it is, is to protect American citizens from this level of corruption and this level of cruelty. Because the thing is, um, and I think Americans maybe have learned this by now, is once an autocrat gets into office, it is very hard to get them out. And time is always the enemy. Every day that goes by that we live under this administration, it's harder to undo the damage. And you sense a sort of shift in mindset. You sense an acceptance of what would have been absolutely intolerable, what would have been the subject of multiple hearings and nonstop media coverage years ago. And so, you know, I still urge people to keep whatever mindset you have before. And remember, these are public servants. They are they are elected to serve you, whether they think that that's their job or not. That is actually their job. And so they need to be held accountable, um, whether they're happy about that situation or not. Um, so, Sarah, I, I want to also talk about some other stuff that I mean, we can circle back to some of this, too. It's not going to go away. But there's other stuff that's in your book that kind of connects with some of the stuff that we are running into in the news today. And so uh, this week, for example, uh, Jeff Bezos announced that he was going to plan to plow his fortune into space travel. Uh, and there was quite a bit of pushback on, on that and a memorable piece uh, written uh, in the New York Times and some letters to the New York Times after that piece um, that there's an awful lot of problems here right now. He's the richest man in the world. There's a lot of problems here right now. And some of the problems are affecting his workers. You have a chapter in this book or a piece in this book about malls, but it kind of transitions into uh, the conditions uh, in Amazon warehouses. I'm assuming when you heard Bezos say that his big priority for the use of his money was space travel, that maybe you had some other ideas for what he could do? Yeah, I, I don't think space travel should be our priority. It kind of alarms me that this is where all these billionaires are going because I'm wondering what they you know, kind of think the fate of the Earth will be, <laughs> whether they're just scouting out new territory. But yes, um, you know, Jeff Bezos could eliminate poverty. Um, and you know, if he doesn't have ambitions that grand, he can certainly afford to pay all of his workers working in these warehouses a living wage and to provide them you know, with adequate benefits and a way to get by in life. Um, you know, in my book, The View from Flyover Country, I have the essay you mentioned about um, the erosion of malls, about the collapse of the retail industry. And that, of course, followed the collapse of downtowns, which happened so long ago that I have no actual memory of, of functional downtowns. I was born into the mall era. Now the malls are dying and they're replaced with um, online shopping like Amazon. And in each case, uh, the conditions for workers get worse and worse. Um, they were worse in malls than they were in, in downtown retail. And they're much worse in warehouses um, where people are overworked and underpaid and unseen, you know, at least in other cases, people could you could see others play and they could see how hard they're working and kind of vouch for the fact that they needed better wages. But now we have this, um, this entrenched underclass that people like Bezos, who, you know, could change it, seem utterly apathetic to. Right. And uh, it has been noted uh, since he said that and since the piece ran in the Times that, for example, I think three out of 10 Amazon warehouse workers in Arizona, are they're eligible for and, and get food stamps. And I think it's one in 10 in Ohio. But I mean, if you're paying your workers in such a way that they're eligible for food stamps, it, it, you, know, you probably should be paying them more instead of planning to go out into space. 
Yeah, and it's been going on for a while. You know, Walmart has the same issue. McDonald's has the same issue. I mean, and this is why you see people with more than one job. You know, they're working both at Walmart and McDonald's, and they're still on food stamps, and they just, you know, cannot get by. And that's a choice uh, that corporations are making. It would be easy for them to raise those wages uh, to the point where people can survive. It's not going to really hurt them. When you're in the realm of wealth um, of these CEOs and uh, of these corporate officials, you know, you're not not exactly going to suffer um, if you give up a little. And, and they do it because they can. Um, they do it because they can get away with it. And it, it's extremely frustrating. I certainly don't see it as a problem that's going to be remedied um, under this particular administration. All right. We're going to take a break here. Uh, we're talking to Sarah Kenzior. Her book is The View from Flyover Country, Dispatches from the Forgotten America. Uh, we'll be back right after this. <laughs> We're back. We're talking to Sarah Kenzior. She's been on our show on, on other occasions. Uh, her new book, uh, the book that we're talking about today, is The View from Flyover Country, Dispatches from the Forgotten America. So I, I want to just, Sarah, um, continue, continue a little bit with what we were talking about before because um, one of the other things that's kind of been in the news, and I, I saw that you uh, linked to it on Twitter, is we're getting a little bit more information. I think partly via Dodd-Frank, we're getting a little bit more uh, information about CEO pay expressed as a ratio to median pay for workers. And, you know, I mean, we tend to think that we know how stark a ratio that is. But some of the numbers here are pretty surprising. I think they looked at uh, uh, what more than 200 uh, countries. Uh, in some cases, in 188 uh, of the 225 companies that they looked at, uh, a single chief executive's pay could be used to pay more than 100 uh, median workers. The average worker at 219 of the 225, so all but six uh, of the companies studied, um, the average worker would have to work at least 45 years to earn what their CEO makes in one year. So it's not just Jeff Bezos. I think I mean really the you know when we, when we think about why wage growth isn't at all parallel with job growth or anything like that, there, it's not a big mystery, right? I mean where the money is going. Yeah, we can tell where it's going. And of course, you know, they don't like this coming out because they think that people will be upset and we are upset, uh, rightfully so. But, you know, what concerns me is that you see this not just in America, you see this worldwide. Um, you know, these billionaires who have absolutely no accountability to their own workers and are not held in check in any way uh, by different governments, often because they're primary donors, um, you know, to politicians and are, a, you know, are of value to them for that reason. And that worries me um, because because the more corrupt governments get, and we're seeing this kind of worldwide lurch uh, to the right, um, you know, we see it in Europe, we see it in countries like Turkey, um, and of course we see it here in the U.S., you end up with a lot of extremely corrupt billionaires, not just people who are apathetic uh, towards workers, which I think is bad enough on its own, but who are just full of outright malice and have so much money that they need to participate in activities like laundering it illegally or, you know, joining up with various mafias 
mafia syndicates. This is all extremely dangerous. Um, it's dangerous for democracy. It's a combination of criminality and wealth and autocratic tendencies. It becomes harder and harder to curb because there's nobody with enough power um, to do so because power is, is measured in wealth. And when you're at that level of extreme wealth, uh, you know it, it's very bad. It hurts. Um, you know not just our kind of material uh, ability to get by, um, but our democracy as well. So last night as I was driving home uh, and thinking about the conversation that we were going to have tonight, I also had the public radio show Marketplace on the air. And they had an interview with a guy named Ken Langone, who has written a book. I think it's called Capitalism is Good! Exclamation point. He is the co-founder of Home Depot. And so uh, I wanted to play a little bit, uh, just a few seconds of him talking to Marketplace host Kai Ristahl. Look, we have a shortage of qualified labor in America today. We have a shortage. Ten years ago, people were worried about what they were going to do to feed their families. You know, and and the other part of that equation, Kai, is public education. We need to get these kids prepared to take advantage of these jobs. I think if we fix that problem, we'll go a long way toward solving an even bigger problem, which is income inequality. We can't afford to allow our income inequality grow. It's got to contract and we've got to bring more people to the party. That's an obligation of capitalism. So those are nice words. Uh, Somehow or other, that's not happening. Uh, A lot of the pieces in your book, Sarah, are about education and higher education in particular and why that's not working. I don't know. What do you think when a CEO says something like that? I mean, I think that this is nonsense. I think this whole rhetoric about a skills gap um, is total nonsense. We used to have on-the-job training. You know, that's the kind of thing that, you know, generations ago was kind of standard. Most people didn't go to college. Many people had jobs that there were the exact same jobs that you would have today, yet you didn't need to shell out all of this money, you know, for higher education. I look at my own grandfather, you know, who incidentally is, you know, he was from Connecticut. He grew up in Connecticut. His parents were immigrants from Poland. He had almost, you know, no education. He had a high school education. He started out as as a factory worker, you know, just working on an assembly line and gradually rose through the ranks and became an engineer and never went to college because he had ability. He worked hard. And that's this, you know, the stereotype of the American dream. And he fit that, you know, he he thrived. Um, He led a good life. That life is completely unimaginable to most people of my generation, um, you know, or even uh, of people older than me because they've put so much emphasis on these often meaningless credentials over ability, uh, over talent, and having access to that those kind of credentials that businesses now require before they give you a job means that you usually have access to inherited wealth. And that locks a lot of people out of the labor market. And that makes people desperate. It makes them settle for jobs like what we just talked about, jobs at you know Amazon warehouses or at Walmart or at McDonald's, you know, jobs that are so bad that you're living off of food stamps on the side. And so the cycle kind of feeds itself, um, and the only people who benefit are very wealthy CEOs. Right. So you talk a lot in this book about post-employment. That, and, and it's not a condition that is relegated to uh, strictly or specifically or exclusively to the poor and uneducated, right? There's, an, there's a post-employment problem that bubbles all the way up through the middle class. And to people who think they found the latter, we've always taught people that the latter was higher education. If you could somehow or other get it together and get yourself to college uh, and get a degree and maybe even a graduate degree, 
uh, you were on your way up the ladder and there wasn't too much that could stop you. And, and that, in a way that you document in some detail, seems to have, have broken. Oh, it's totally broken. Um, you're seeing a lot of jobs that are, you know, acquired through nepotism, um, through connections. You're seeing a conglomeration of industries in extremely expensive areas, um, areas like D.C. or New York or San Francisco. So even if you do have the education and the skills um, to take a job, for example, in the tech sector, do you have the money to work there? Do you have the money to work unpaid internships? They've put in all of these barriers um, that have made it really difficult so that even if you, quote, unquote, play by the rules. You know, you go to college, um, you shell out a lot of money, take out a lot of loans for that, take out loans for a master's degree or an advanced degree. You're still entering an extremely narrow job market. And that's been made much worse since 2008, um, where this expectation of unpaid labor started to become normal. Um, It was a, a manufactured crisis. It was a way for businesses to say, oh, you know, we don't have the money to pay you at this time because the economy is so bad. And then they just kept those practices in play as a way to just retain the most elite workers, um, people with enormous family wealth who don't need to get paid. Um, you know, it's a very small slice of the American population. And that doesn't mean that you're getting the best people. It means, you know, you're often getting, you know, fairly uh, mediocre people because it's become a purchased meritocracy. And I think you really see that in action these days um, in our media and certainly in our government. Um, I'd say somebody like Jared Kushner really kind of embodies all these trends. You know, he goes and buys himself a Harvard degree. He's the son-in-law of the president. He doesn't seem to have any kind of, uh, you know, skills or abilities, yet he's in a position of immense power through nepotism. We kind of have that at a, you know, microcosm level in, in companies all over America. Right. I mean, you begin one of your chapters, I think, with a UN internship that costs $22,000 to have. <laughs> and they were having an auction for it. They were auctioning off an internship so that that cost could rise and rise and rise. And, you know, the whoever won it had $22,000 cash on hand. You know, that's more than somebody like working at McDonald's around the clock makes in a year. And so when you have that kind of dichotomy, when you have the, that kind of inequality and that split, um, it, you know, it, it's an absolute disaster. You know, you end up with very unqualified but wealthy people taking these positions And you end up with a mass of qualified um, and extremely frustrated job seekers who are often locked in, you know, temp jobs um, in terms of education as adjuncts, um, you know, working as interns, even in areas like law, you know, which used to be a career field that people would kind of go into because they thought, okay, this is safe. This is well paying. My degree will pay off. You've got people with like $100,000 in debt and very few opportunities. There's opportunity hoarding. And, you know, this will get um, stuck worse, I think, unless these exploitative labor practices go away. Um, and since, you know, I originally wrote some of these essays, some fields have changed this. You know, you do see in media more people paying their interns. But honestly, you know, salaries are so low, wages are so low that it still locks out a substantial part of the population. Um, one of the responses these days of the Trump administration has been basically to declare victory, right? Uh, Donald Trump was at the Boeing plant in St. Louis, where you're from, on March 14th. He said, we helped Wall Street. We helped Main Street. We helped everybody. He's talking about his tax cut uh, and job reports, I think. I don't know. How do you respond to something like that? 
I mean, he's full of it. And, you know, people in Missouri, even including people who voted for him, think he's full of it on this tax bill and also on this trade bill. You know, like Missouri's having a crisis right now uh, because of soybeans, because of agricultural trade and what Trump is doing with China. He's making all sorts of deals all over the world that are are designed to benefit him and him and his family members, occasionally his little group of cronies, and have nothing to do um, with the American people. And, you know, one thing that always interested me about the Trump administration and who he selected for it is that he has people in it that specifically, you know, targeted and hurt Missouri. He had Carl Icahn as a financial advisor, the guy who wiped out TWA. And so he's never had the interest of the Midwest at heart. He's never had interest in the Midwest, period. The only time he bothered in his very wealthy and privileged life to invest at all in our region was to, you know, go to Gary, Indiana and basically, you know, bankrupt it like he did with Atlantic City. He's never been good for for anybody. He's good for bad business, and that's what he's brought um, to his own voter base. You know, when you say his wealthy and privileged life, I had sort of a different um, aperçu that that your book triggered. I was reading your book and just thinking about some other stuff. This isn't something that you say in the book. It's just something I started to think. I started to realize that there's a way in which... So Fran Lebowitz once said that uh, that Donald Trump is a poor person's idea of a rich person, which is kind of funny and sort of true. But I think the truer thing is that you know, when people see Donald Trump, and I think, you know, average Americans who may have supported Donald Trump see Donald Trump, there, there may be some of them who can kind of sniff out the reality. People aren't, aren't that stupid. They can probably sniff out the reality that he's not wealthy the way, say, Warren Buffett is wealthy. You know, he's wealthy in a way that involves a, a lot of leveraging, a lot of very, very complicated deals that are heavily reliant on debt. To whatever degree they look at him, they realize that some of his wealth and some of his strutting about his wealth is a house of cards that could fall apart you know, if you poked it too hard, uh, and that he's cash poor and enough to uh, continue to need to get paid by all kinds of foreign interests, even now when he's the president of the United States. You know, they may sort of identify with that. I mean, he's them writ large. The average American is struggling with a ton of debt. The average American uh, feels as though one really bad, stiff economic wind could blow him or her over. That to what if they feel at all like they're maintaining a, a, at all, they also feel imperiled. And I find myself wondering, as I read your book, maybe that's something they identified in him, too. You know, that, yes, he's wealthy and privileged, but not like he's not Bill Gates. He's not Warren Buffett. He's this kind of guy who's constantly putting together, you know, leveraged deals to create at least temporary appearances of wealth. I'm not sure people really that that really registered with people in part because the media didn't delve too deep into all of his bankruptcies and you know the disasters of his financial past like i ran into a lot of people who voted for trump who knew him primarily from the apprentice you know mm-hmm. which was an image whitewash it was where he was presented as this you know incredible businessman this great tycoon of new york city and most trump voters i met thought oh it's good to have somebody who understands business and is so successful in business and power and i think people um you know 
in that live near New York City and kind of remember the tabloid era of Donald Trump of the late 80s, uh, early 90s, where his failures were on the front page of every newspaper, they really knew that backstory, you know, and they knew that he was kind of full of it. I'm not sure that younger people um, or people that kind of grew up with him, um, you know, being on The Apprentice knew that. I think maybe Trump's own rhetoric, though, might have been influenced by the fact that he is such a terrible businessman that he did, you know, lurk close to disaster or go through um, disasters in his industries so many times that, you know, he sort of knows what it's like to lose everything. But, you know, we got to be real. Like, this is a guy who started out, was born immensely wealthy, was given a million dollars by his father uh, to continue the family business. That's not an experience that the vast majority of Americans can relate to at all. You know, he was born into incredible prosperity and stability. And if he hadn't screwed it up himself, um, in part by getting into bed with all these gangsters, then he would have had probably, you know, more money than he does now. So he made terrible choices. And I'm not sure that those choices are all that relatable to the average American, because most of us aren't, you know, rocking with a Kremlin mob syndicate or, you know, bailing out our towers abroad. (laughs) You know, these are not the problems. This is not the plight of the everyman. But maybe I I do think, though, that Trump has an ear uh, for insecurity, for pain, for vulnerability. He doesn't care about stopping it. He doesn't care about helping people, but he certainly knows how to exploit it. And that might have come out of his own biographical experience. Right. Um, Yeah, no, I was sort of thinking that if they were reading him that way, they weren't reading him that way based on information, kind of just sniffing that out uh, in all of his bluster that, that, that maybe he's a little bit more like the guy down the street who's barely got it strung together, but he's got this really great boat that he's always talking about. <laughs> all right. We're going to uh, grab a, another quick break here. When we come back, we'll have the final segment of our conversation with Sarah Kenzier. That's crossing the lines. There's a blue Two years after the election, and we're still divided. But now it's by Yanni and Laurel. Today's show is produced by Betsy Kaplan, with help from me, Kion Wolf, and Amanda Fish. The part of Bill Curry was played by Meghan Markle. On tomorrow's show, The Nose Tackles the Karate Kid Reboot. And now, back to Colin. Right now, we're talking to uh, Sarah Kenzier. Her new book is The View from Flyover Country, Dispatches from the Forgotten America. Um, so, Sarah, uh, one thing that I think that you, you touch upon, uh, it's something that I think about a lot these days, is let's imagine that, and I think this is a stretch. I think you and I both think it's a stretch. But let, let's imagine that the Robert Mueller probe is e- even more cataclysmic than we might have imagined, and that somehow a year from now, it is just by common understanding Donald Trump just can't be president anymore based on what's come out and uh, Mike Pence is sworn in and, and obviously there's an awful lot of other dominoes that start falling there. I think a lot of people tell themselves, people who have found the last two years disturbing, uh, they think they tell themselves, good, well, we'll get rid of this anomaly, this anomalous presidency and we'll get America back. Um, and, well, I'll just let you react to that. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's mistaken in two ways. Um, you know, first, I don't think people should be looking for saviors, period. They should be looking for accountability. Um, they should be looking for self-determination in these very difficult times. And I don't think that Mueller um, is necessarily going to be able to bring justice. Um, because as I said before, the longer people are in office, you know, like Trump, the more they can rewrite the laws, manipulate the laws, delete documents, etc., to their own favor. Um, the other thing, though, is that, you know, there's all this talk about we need to get back to normal. Um, and what people forget is that normal wasn't good for a large part of America. Um, normal was never good for certain groups of Americans. You know, this is a country that legally had genocide of Native Americans, slavery, Jim Crow, internment camps. These are all autocratic uh, policies that were lawfully enacted. And so that's why, you know, the law is a precarious thing. As I said before, it's only as good as people upholding it. And then, you know, if if you look at the last um, 15 years or so, uh, the, the results of two wars, of the recession, of this extreme economic inequality, you have a country of people who've been suffering. And Trump was able to tap into that suffering very effectively and exploit it for personal gain. But I think what we really need to strive for is to eliminate that suffering. You know, we need to strive for something better and new and not just try to get back um, you know, to 2014 or 2013, because those were very very difficult times. Uh, we need to take a good hard look at systemic problems, um, at problems that are causing people pain, uh, and do what we can to try to remedy them. Uh, this week, his former Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, uh, gave his first speech. He's probably not going to give very many speeches, but he gave it at the Virginia Military Institute, where I think he'd promised well in advance of the latest um, developments in his life to give a speech. And, and he pretty, pretty clearly was talking about Donald Trump, talking about um, ways in which uh, our government now is ethically compromised, ways in which corruption uh, now endangers our freedoms. Um, I already know what you think of that, but I'll <laughs> let you respond. Yeah, uh, I'd like to know where that Rex Tillerson was um, back when he was appointed, back when he was in office, back when he was gutting the State Department. Rex Tillerson, who received the Order of Friendship Medal from Putin, who had a lot to gain from this relationship that Trump has had with Russia um, and the elimination of sanctions, which is beneficial to Exxon, etc. You know, Tillerson, in my mind, um, is as corrupt as the rest. And maybe now that he sees the full consequences of this, maybe now that he sees his children, his grand children are going to have to live with the consequences of an extremely corrupt and cruel administration. Maybe he's having regrets, um, but the time to speak out was when he held power, not now. And, you know, do I hope that others take Tillerson's lead uh, in, you know, condemning Trump? Yes, but I hope that they're the people who are actually in office and can actually do something about this. Um, you know, I guess better late than never, but, you know, people who, who have the opportunity to make a positive change need to be brave, um, need to not think about these short-term careerist goals, need to not take anything for granted. They need to speak out because this is a time that, you know, it's a perilous time for American democracy. As we near the midterms, we're really at a tipping point. And if you have something to reveal or something you'd like to condemn, then now is the time to speak. But the outspeakers, for the most part, at least around him, are gone. I was just listening to an interview with Evan Osnos from The New Yorker, who was making this point that really one of the scary things uh, is that if you if the first two years of the Trump administration were alarming to you or worse than alarming to you, I mean, consider the fact that all of the people 
except possibly John Kelly, if you want to give him that rule, all of the people who ever attempted to exercise any restraint over him have been cleaned out and replaced by, with John Bolton's. You know? uh, yeah. I, yeah. Go ahead. It's gotten steadily worse. I mean, I guess we got rid of Bannon. We got rid of Gorka. There's, you know, a few um, kind of raging lunatics um, that have left the scene. But yeah, we have Bolton, who's incredibly dangerous. I actually think Kelly is quite dangerous. I think he's a bigot. I think maybe Mattis is the only one who was qualified for his position. And, you know, I do disagree with him, but he seems, um, you know, lucid and, and loyal to the country. Um, yeah, you know, the the more this goes on, uh, the, the more governments, the more the government is drained of competent professionals and replaced just with lackeys. You know, the, the main quality that Trump looks for in a hire is personal loyalty above all else. And they will go to incredible lengths to try to instill that loyalty. They will blackmail people. They will threaten people. They will bribe people. And they've been doing that to those in government. Um, you know, I think within the GOP, you see genuine corruption, careerism, but you also see tremendous fear. You see people who used to speak out, people like Lindsey Graham, doing a 180 in their position that's so precise that you can just take a sentence they said in November 2016 and you know make it negative and, and it reflects suddenly their new values. These are people that, in my mind, um, you know, having studied authoritarian regimes for a long time, they seem terrified. They seem very afraid. Um, you know, and I've been threatened a lot. I've been threatened the entire time I've been covering this administration. And of course, it's a very frightening thing. Of course, you worry for yourself and you worry for your family. But, you know, you still have an obligation if you have a platform. And certainly, if you're in a position of power, you need to to do your job. And the job of an official is to be accountable to the American public, is to stand up for citizens who are being persecuted and harmed, not to aid in that persecution. And that's unfortunately a message that seems to have been lost on members of this administration. One of the chapters of your book is called In Defense of Complaining. You suggest that even President Obama started to market this idea that people should stop complaining. Uh, the the on-ramps have now all been built uh, and and just, you know, it's up to you to make the most of these opportunities. Uh, I, I hear what you're doing right now. and I think, well, this is the kind of good complaining you're talking about, right? Yeah, complaining is necessary. And, you know, as I point out in that chapter, complaining shows compassion. When you're complaining on somebody else's behalf, you're showing that you care enough about their problems to make somebody else uncomfortable. And the person you're making uncomfortable is usually somebody who's in a position of power. And when you say to somebody, stop complaining, you know, what you're really saying is just shut up, just suck it up, just take it. And no one should be forced to, to take it. And I think that we do have this kind of stigma of, oh, you know, this person is problematic, uh, this person is a pain, this person never shuts up. Um, and I perhaps have that reputation, but you know, I, I don't regret it. Because, you know, any kind of social movement um, you know, started out with somebody complaining, and everybody who was complaining was at first not taken seriously or dismissed or threatened or mocked or what have you. But the point of the complaint, um, you know, it, it is to try to improve life for other people, to try to ensure that people have rights. Um, and one of those rights is freedom of speech. And that's something that we should just never take for granted. I think often in America we do because we do have, you know, much more than other countries, a very long um, and consistent history of freedom of speech, not by any means a flawless one, um, you know, but one that's been in our Constitution uh, from the start. Um, and we have a very outspoken culture. And I think, you know, what I see nowadays sometimes is a kind of self-censorship, whether it's out of fear of repercussions from either, you know, corporate 
corporations or from the administration, or just a fear of looking silly, like, oh God, am I going to be labeled hysterical or alarmist, um, you know, et cetera. I, I say, if, if you're concerned about something, speak out, because odds are you're right. And we're dealing with a really odd reality. I mean, we're essentially living in what feels every day like a very poorly constructed Tom Clancy novel. So I understand when people think, well, this can't really be happening, or, you know, this can't um, be our life now. Uh, but it is. And so, you know, the way I try to sort of structure it to stay, um, you know, focused is just look who's suffering, look who's abetting suffering, um, you know, look at ways to stop it and just kind of start from there and, you know, keep your morals intact, keep your values intact, because they will try to take everything else away from you. Um, but you at least know who you are and what you stand for. Sarah Kenzier, first of all, before we run out of time, let me mention the book again, The View from Flyover Country, Dispatches from the Forgotten America. Well, we're heading into uh, a midterm election in 2018. I don't really like calling it a midterm election. I mean, here in Connecticut, we're electing a governor, we're electing a U.S. senator, we're electing Congress members in our legislature. I don't know. It doesn't feel like a midterm election to me. It feels like an election. But anyway, we're heading into this. And and then there, I mean, you know, assuming that our constitution remains intact, we'll have an election in 2020. I mean, what do you do? I don't know if you traffic in political predictions, but what do you think about when you think about 2020? I mean, for 2020, I basically don't want to make a prediction until I see how the elections go in 2018 and whether they're free and fair, you know, because we've already had um, severe problems with our elections, especially since the partial repeal of the VRA in 2013 and all these new voter ID laws, um, you know, which were meant to disenfranchise voters. And then, you know, this was what I thought had happened, and it turned out it was what happened. Um, In terms of Russian interference, they exploited that vulnerability. Um, They exploited, you know, know, uh, domestic voter suppression by hacking voter databases or targeting certain voters through the internet. So you have this combination of a domestic, um, you know, systematic problem and a foreign threat. Um, So you're already starting out with that going into 2018. At the same time, I think we've seen, you know, a democratic wave. We've seen Democrats winning in all of these special elections in rather unlikely places like Alabama. And I see a lot of momentum um, on the ground in their favor because people are really fed up with this administration. What I do worry about, though, is, uh, you know, say the Democrats do win, say they even sweep, although I don't think that's likely. Will the GOP accept uh, the results? You know, I'm, I'm honestly worried about that. That's not something I've ever worried about in this country before. I'm worried if, if, if the Democrats win, they'll just not accept it, not concede. Roy Moore never conceded. Or they'll use the fact that there has been um, hacking and foreign interference to try to dismiss those results. They'll make up some sort of, you know, farcical tale about, oh, the Russians wanted to rig it for the Democrats, which of course makes no sense because the reason the Russians got involved in the election was because they were against democratic policies like the Magnitsky Act and sanctions. So if you hear that, um, it's a lot of BS, so just a forewarning. But yeah, um, the fact that I'm even discussing this, uh, that I'm this worried about the integrity of our elections uh, should alarm you. And, you know, I'll, I'll see what happens if uh, 2018 turns out to be free and fair. Um, if there's transparency and integrity to our electoral process, I'll, I'll feel more positive um, about the future and maybe able to make a prediction then. Right. You can go back and do that. But we already know from the uh, 2016 campaign that Donald Trump during that campaign said that he was going to keep people keep, keep people in suspense 
I think he put it uh, about whether he would accept the uh, the results of that election if he didn't win it. So there's already a little bit of groundwork laid for the kind of thing that you're talking about. We have to stop here, though. Uh, it's been spellbinding, uh, as usual. The View from Flyover Country by Sarah Kenzior. Thank you for coming back to our show. Oh, thank you. Anytime. It's a pleasure to talk to you.